Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Welcome to our first episode of King Garden's new podcast, In the Landscape, where we like to take listeners with us as we travel to gorgeous gardens around the country and the world, doing landscape design, landscape design care, and just plain old visiting the places we love as we travel the globe. Mm -hmm. So with me here in studio is our resident landscape designer, Charles Sadler. About your background, what makes you an expert on landscapes? My interest is what propels me to keep learning. I started off as a fine artist and a commercial artist, illustrator. Eventually, I made my way into an architecture program and simultaneously working in the field, working in a Japanese garden for a period of time, then working at various firms. I became a certified arborist. The benefit of that to create gardens at work that are beautiful and then founding our own practice. Great. So... I thought maybe we'd start with this first episode talking about your first love, trees. (laughs) (laughs) What are some of the best tree parks and gardens that you've been to in recent memory? This winter, we spent time in Portland, Oregon. Beautiful parks there. The Japanese garden in Portland is lovely. There's an arboretum that's adjacent to that that's beautiful. Of course, all the Olmstead parks throughout New York State, Buffalo, Rochester, Brooklyn, Manhattan. Those are some favorites that come to mind. So when you were in Oregon, the first time we went was to visit my sister. And we found out she happens to live just a couple blocks from one of the most famous, impressive conifer evergreen propagators, (laughs) Isley just down the street. So, you know, Oregon is a special place for growing trees. Tell us a little bit about your most recent visit and some of the nurseries you visited and how they are growing the trees that get shipped out across the country. This winter, we went to J. Frank Schmidt. So they produce what are called liners, which are very small trees, which is like the thickness of like a, of a whip. And then some of those, they grow themselves into full-size trees that you might buy at a local nursery. And then they also sell those on to people that grow trees throughout North America. So it was fascinating to see their process where there's, they're pruning the roots of these small trees, they're pruning the top of the tree when it's very young. These plants are touched many times to correct defects. So there's, there's good roots that they're growing on, that the trunks have good architecture. So they're very selective. Like a lot of the plants go on what they call the burn pile, meaning that they don't meet the standard trees that come out of that operation. They're like some of the best in in North America. And what was the operation like? For those of you who are interested in seeing some of the images that you captured at this nursery, there are images posted on our Instagram. You can follow us at King Garden Inc. on Instagram, and we often use our hashtag in the landscape. What was it like visiting the actual production area? You know, it was fascinating to see. They have hundreds of employees which take the the, uh, plants from seedlings. So there were greenhouses where some of the plants were grown from seed. Others are from cuttings. There's various approaches. And then there's a sorting process. So it goes from a seedling where it's in a pot within a nursery. And then eventually it gets transferred outside. And they have conveyor belts. So these little seedlings that are bare root, this would be like in the winter when the plants are dormant, and there's people sorting them. They're pulling them off and inspecting the roots. Then then the roots get trimmed. There's a lot of attention given, and the end result is that it's a superior tree. So a lot of 
wholesale nurseries, some of them are only open to landscape professionals. And you actually need to kind of establish that you are one before you can visit. And of course, a lot of our listeners are not necessarily landscape professionals. They're just garden enthusiasts. How easy is it to visit some of these places? Does Isley have a garden that anyone can walk into? Do you think folks can just call? Or is it really kind of a closed system? And, and you know, even if that's your version of Disneyland, you're not really <laughs> granted access. Uh, yeah, good question. Isley, you can call and make an appointment. They have, and I think, I believe it's open to any interested party. They have display gardens that are near their sales office. So it's sort of this large operation. I think it's definitely over a thousand acres. So it's like thousands of acres, but there's a hub, which is the sales office. And there are beautiful display gardens with unusual, rare, slow growing conifers, dwarf. They also specialize in Japanese maples. And so to my knowledge, that's open to the public. And then J. Frank Schmidt, they have an arboretum, which is I guess it's adjacent to some of their other offices, and that's open to the public, where there's just can drive, there's a parking lot, and it's very community friendly. <laughs> so not every nursery is going to be open to everyone who wants to come and visit, but a lot of them do actually have an opportunity for those who are interested in seeing where those plants come from to visit, which is exciting because I'm sure they're as passionate about what they do as those of us who buy these you know, magnificent trees and get them in the ground in our own gardens. So you are here with us in Texas and a topic came to mind because you were driving around taking a look at some of the big, big trees that grow here in Texas and sparked this as a topic of conversation. What was going on that inspired you to talk about trees down here in particular? Well, seeing how the live oak is used in these suburban developments where it's one of the widest spreading trees, I would say, in North America. Spreading as in territory or spreading as in the physical tree itself? The physical tree itself. So it gets, you know, roughly four times as wide. So it's like a big muffin is, the, is, what, it, <laughs> is what it looks like. If you took a, a muffin pop, that's sort of what a live oak is. And so seeing it planted in the suburban development where the next one it's, is planted are 15 feet apart, it's going to cause a problem. More like in, in nature, I learned this when we were working in San Antonio, how the live oak, it puts out vegetative growth from the root. So it's seedlings of other live oaks. And so it forms sort of like a thicket of its own growth beneath it, which keeps out competition. So it's a plant that, that likes to spread. So it doesn't like neighbors. <laughs> right, correct. It doesn't play well with others. <laughs> right. Okay. So in that case, is there a, an alternative that you would be planting that might have a similar majesty and give people that southern oak feel without kind of taking up nearly as much room. Now, there are many trees in the red oak family in Texas. So that would be ones that would be pointy as opposed to rounded. There's the, the water oak, which is a, a native that grows here, which is more upright. The combination of shade tree, which would be an oak, which is like a large a tree that's you know, generally going to get to be 40 feet or taller, where an ornamental tree would generally be 30 feet and shorter combination of ornamental trees works well with the shade. Just when you have just shade trees, they tend to grow together and shade each other out, sort of compete with each other. So you have a phrase for this that you actually use with your design clients. And you talk a lot almost about the human resources of plants. So talk a little bit about that phrase and, and what it means. Well, like the right plant in the right place is a old saying. And then, you know, human resources point of view, there's when the person's in the right role, they thrive. And when they're not, things don't go so well. So finding the right plant for the right place would be thinking, what's the goal here? Do you want 
you want to shade a hot afternoon sun here in Texas and have a nice big shade tree on the west side of the house, I think, I mean, just to play critic, when trees are planted, with that, which is a great intention, there's often not a whole lot of thought goes into what size is the tree going to become? Do you want shade? Maybe it's going to drop. Like a magnolia can be a beautiful tree, but it may drop a lot of litter. So do you want that? That wouldn't be the right tree for over your driveway or your pool. (laughs) (laughs) No. Now, for some of our listeners not in the South, or I know we've got live oaks out in California, for example, what does this tree look like? It's a relatively dark evergreen leaf. If you think of a small pickle, it's, you know, it's like roughly that shape where it's rounded. There's no, you think of a white oak or a, a red oak, there are what they call sinuses. So it's like a maple. The edges undulate. With the live oak, it, it doesn't. It's a long leaf. It's almost almond shaped, right? Mm-hmm. I, the reason I know live oaks myself, I'm originally from California. We've lived for a while in the Northeast and spent time in Texas now. And if you have a live oak that drops its leaves, they're dried out. They are the spiniest things in the world to step on in bare feet. <laughs> so mm-hmm. again, you're talking about um, being around your pool area or something. And it's maybe depending on the litter, if it's if it's a spiky little leaf, you might not want that either. Right. It's similar to a holly leaf, like the, the American holly that you see in the Northeast, in the Mid-Atlantic. It's it's similar to that. But the live oak, when you see it in the Texas landscape, I mean, like, like a typical landscape would be a slightly rolling meadow and a very wide spreading tree, and then cattle or other livestock, you know, taking shade under it. It's like a giant umbrella, really. Yeah, or the other description you use, you relate it to a, a giant octopus with all its legs. Oh, right. Yeah. And you see that, like spending time in San Antonio with the, um, when you have a very mature property, let's, let's say it's 100 years old or more, and you have live oaks that have adapted to other large trees. So the branches get very long. So there's still a canopy, but the inside is more or less free of leaves. And then they sometimes have that Spanish moss on them, right? Oh, right. It's very pretty. So how are they for maintenance? Is it a lot of pruning you need to do to help it get its shape, or does it kind of do that on its own? Good question. If it has enough room to grow, it would need it would probably need, still need some pruning, what you'd call a developmental pruning. A term for that would be structural pruning, where, you know, just like in a, from a resources perspective, like organizationally, as something grows, there's an editing process where there's more branches than it needs as it grows often. So if, it's, if there's plenty of room for it to grow, there'd still be some editing. When it comes from the grower, it's often, it's groomed to look really pretty and catch your attention, and so you want to buy it. There's often an overabundance of branches, though. If it didn't have room to spread out, it would need a fair amount of pruning, where it's going to start to hang over your roof, or it's going to grow over your driveway. As the branches grow up and then pretty quickly start to hang down, some of the lower branches need to be removed often. As it, as it matures. So in other words, this right plant in the right place, if you're doing a, a landscape design, it can help with maintenance farther down the road, which is not something that's always thought of when plants are going in the ground. Right. Yeah. I often think when, you know, when we meet with a new client, asking about how it's going to be maintained, ideally the level of care and attention that can be given a garden should be really the first question. And so that's true of the other oaks you mentioned, the red oak and the the water oak. Is water oak. One. I almost said swamp white oak, because I know that's another one of your favorites. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are there, 
there are more oaks than I ever knew <laughs> <laughs> before before meeting and talking to you. A um, little oak is another pretty one. Yeah. So do those require the same kind of maintenance up front? Is that just um, standard for most trees that are going to go in the ground? In the structural pruning, Dr. Ed Gilman, who's at a university in Florida, his peer-reviewed literature suggests to, to do the structural pruning, thinning the branches at planting time, which is it's unconventional because the thought used to be, don't touch the, the plant, let it grow, let it get established. But what they found is the defects, imperfections, it's best to remove those as soon as possible. Great. So one thing we can do for our listeners is link to some of the resources we mentioned in our show notes. So we'll be sure that there's a link to Dr. Gilman's work in the show notes. People can find that out further because that's not necessarily widely reported. You might think of protecting the tree and not overtaxing it when it first goes in the ground, but it actually benefits from some early intervention. And there's great uh, other great resources I can mention. The Arbor Day Foundation, they have good software where you enter, uh, I want shade, and I live in Nebraska, you know, or I live in New Jersey near the shore. So you, you can enter the conditions, and you'd like something that flowers in July or August. So Arbor Day Foundation is a good resource. Texas A&M has a similar tree finder. The Missouri Botanic Garden has great resources. You know, there's many great resources online. So we're talking a lot about oaks today. Is there a region of the country where no oak grows, or is that the kind of tree that you can find all over the country? Well, you know, good question. It grows throughout almost all of North America. Some of the desert areas, to my knowledge, doesn't exist there. <laughs> and if you're wrong, I'm sure our listeners will get in touch with us. You can always email us at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also get in touch with us if you have questions. We'll compile questions for an episode on, you know, ask your landscape professional or show ideas if there's something you really want to know, whether it's about the history of landscape design or a specific style to plant in your part of the, the country. Feel free to shoot us an email, connect at kinggardeninc.com. And we'll go ahead and comb through those and compile other shows based on your feedback, which is always one of the best parts of podcasting, that it is somewhat interactive and you can really be responding to the people in the field. So when you go to a nursery and select a tree, what are you looking? Let's say I've selected, I want a red bud. It's going to have beautiful spring flowers, nice foliage, and it's going to be the right size for the right spot. So I'm going to ask the salesperson that's giving me the tour of the nursery, I might ask them, where did this come from? So what, one thing that occurs, let's say you're in, you're in New York State, the boxwood at a nursery might have come from North Carolina. And so that could be okay. Or that boxwood hasn't experienced New York State winters ever. <laughs> mm. So you can ask where it came from. You're going to look for the, if it's a tree, you would look for the root flare so that it gets wider at the base, like a, a wine glass. That's one way to think of a tree, that the, there's the trunk is the stem of the wine glass, and the roots are, are the base of the wine glass, which is pretty, it's actually quite a narrow area. You're going to inspect the trunk to make sure it's not damaged. You're going to check if the branch, if there's crossing branches, that's not good. The branches that come off of the trunk and then subsequently branch into smaller branches should be no more than 50% as wide as the branch that it's coming from. What you don't want is that it's unbalanced and that could break weather, snow, ice, wind. I know uh, being transplanted from California to New York, winters were a bit of a shock <laughs> for me too. So, uh, you know, plants are, are living organisms and react 
kind of the way you would. If it's hot outside, they're thirsty. If it's cold outside, they're cold. So Mm -hmm. something to keep in mind. Anything else you'd look for in the tree from the nursery? Well, let's see that it's that the canopy, which is thing of the exterior shape, that it's relatively balanced, that there's not, the tree was probably growing in a row of other trees, and maybe it was growing on the edge of a field. So maybe one side was shaded. That's something to inspect. And so, you know, we just did a project and we selected three uh, swamp white oaks. And at the nursery, they were packed tightly together. It was hard to tell the canopy of one of the three was thinner. No, it ended up working out fine. So if I can't see the canopy, I'll ask it often would need a machine, but uh, you know, take the tree out in the open so you can inspect it. I don't know. I have a hard time even picking a Christmas tree. <laughs> I mean, the scale is always different from what I'm expecting. How do you measure the tree to know what the cost usually is? Because I know that varies widely depending on how mature the tree is. And- oh, right. When we started, remember the subject was interesting to another family member, the use of plant brokers. Oh, yeah. And so I remember chatting with a plant broker out of Rochester that serves uh, like the eastern U.S., probably east of the Mississippi. That You know, they, they would work west, too. But we had a large transplanting project on Long Island, and he was able to help me estimate the weight of the plants just by the height. So if it's like, a, for instance, like a 10-foot evergreen, he had like a table, basically, that said that ought to weigh about seven, 800 pounds. And so when you have a beautiful garden that's built... There's so many people going, you know, the person, the farmer that's growing the trees, the truck driver that's delivering it, the plant broker, the irrigation, the landscape professionals, the landscape architects, landscape designers. It works best when there's collaboration and when everyone has the goal of creating a beautiful garden. What is the, some key elements to planting a tree in your yard? So if you're able to get it in there yourself, or if you're just checking up on the job being done by your landscape professional, because it's always good to have knowledge going into hiring a professional so that you can kind of kind of check that things are going the way you would expect for, for whatever you're spending on a project. What are key elements to, to seeing that a tree is planted correctly? Well, the, the first step would be to find the root flare where... Even a small tree, it's going to get slightly wider at the base. So if it's coming in, if it's in a container or if it's bald and burlapped, there's often excess soil. It could be, with a larger tree, it could be 6 or 8 or 12 inches of extra soil, which would have to be removed. If the tree looks like a telephone pole going straight into the ground, that's not good. So that's, that's removing the excess soil, finding the flare, and there ought to be surface roots that you see on, coming out of that flare like spokes on a bicycle that radiate away from the trunk, planting at the right depth. So deeper kills, basically. Planting it too deep, it'll suffocate the tree. There won't be a positive exchange of gases, and it can stay too wet. So just a simple trick, once you find the root flare, you can use a shovel or a tape measure, and you measure the height from the root flare to the ground. As the, If it's in a container or bald and burlapped, and you find that height, and then... You take another shovel laid across your hole that you've started to dig and then make sure that the depth is correct. And I find planting it a little bit high is beneficial. It was a good-sized tree, let's say, where the trunk was the size of your of your wrist. It should be like a three-inch caliper. Planting it two or three inches high is generally a good amount. And so by doing that, make sure there's plenty of loose soil, that there's that it's mulched. I would need to stake it so it would be secure. That it can you mulch away. over the root flare? So the, flare, the root flare can't be below the soil, but can that mulch kind of cover that root flare? Or do you need uh, to keep it really exposed? 
So let's say if, if the goal is for the new tree to have several inches of mulch would be about the maximum three inches or so. As the mulch gets closer to the tree, so when you're within a few inches of the root flare, it should taper down to almost nothing. So you can almost see the roots, so it's, it's not going to stay soggy is the goal. And then in the winter, you can imagine if there's, if let's say there's four inches of mulch right up against the trunk, which is often done, which is incorrect. In, in a cold climate, you have rodents that are, they're trying to survive in the winter. And it's, so you're creating this sort of habitat. And then it's common for a rodent to eat the bark. If it's exposed, that's exposed to the elements. And so that's, that's actually good. A podcast is ongoing, immediately responsive style of communication with a listening audience. And so if you ever hear anything said on the podcast that hits you as incorrect, shoot us an email, connect at kinggardeninc.com to let us know because we are always learning. Charles has an extensive landscape design background. I do not. And even we might misstate something on the podcast, and we certainly don't want to give our listeners any misinformation. We look forward to that dialogue with those of you who pick up this podcast and find it interesting. So that's a lot of good information about thinking about what we need to do when we're planting from really examining where the plant's going to go and how it needs to behave in order to really thrive in the spot that you've picked out for your tree, what to do when you're at the nursery to figure out you know, whether the tree is in good shape prior to planting, doing some structural pruning before it even goes in the ground, and then, and then how to prep the ground for it. One of the important elements that then we are always mindful of once plants have gone in the ground for our clients is water. What do you do once the tree is planted? You've made sure the root flare is somewhat exposed so you're not suffocating your tree. And is it different for different trees in particular? The subject we didn't cover that relates to the water, watering, is the soil. If it's clay soil, it'll hold the water. And there are some plants that will tolerate that. And others, grass, let's say, is very shallow rooted or perennials. Some of those are shallow rooted. So watering a tree, we want to encourage deep roots. And so to do that, you water deeply, but less frequently. So what that might mean, you have your tree that's it's a red maple that you bought, and it's, you know, it's, a, it's the fall. It hasn't rained in a few days, so at planting time, to really soak the water so it's, the soil around the tree is inundated, that it's, it's soggy is the goal. And so to ensure that with a hose or watering can, soaking the water around the tree until it starts to pool up, and then you watch it percolate in. And I like to do that several times during one watering session. And we've sometimes used those donuts or the bags that actually hold some water. You're a little cautious about that because you think folks might think they don't need to water as often or they'll neglect to fill them. Is that a concern? Right. Like the watering bags, there are some called it's where it's, it's more vertical, like a tree gator style. And then there's some that where it's a donut. Any tool to, to get enough water to the tree, I like to utilize. Those bags, they distribute the water within a period of of hours or less. So it's so for the homeowner, filling them is, is, is relatively quick. So you can fill the bag in a couple of minutes and then the water will, will dribble out over the course of a couple of hours or so. So for some gardeners, that's more convenient than standing there, you know, for 10, 20 minutes to water a large tree. And then once the tree is established, do you have to do this once it's a few years old or does that usually taper off after a while? It's really the first year, the first season that's the most important with the watering regularly. For many trees in much of the U.S., 
it would be watering several times a week during the, from the spring through the fall. Actually watering it, I like to say to water it through Thanksgiving. <laughs> People often know that holiday. What's commonly done, you get to Labor Day and people go back to work, kids go back to school, and people think that the plants are done for the year. And actually the fall, tree roots do a lot of growing in the fall, where it's the temperatures are cooler, which is beneficial for tree root growth. So watering it right through Thanksgiving, the, the fall you can think of as a second spring, where there's a lot of growth going on below the ground. Encouraging that growth helps the plant make it through the winter successfully. And so even though you're doing all the watering that you, you know you should be, it's still a shock for trees to get picked up from somewhere and put somewhere else. So you may see some leaves drop or, I mean, depending on the species of tree, is, there anything, yeah, is there anything you should be concerned about in particular or is it case by case? You know, we had that question that one, one client that had, it was a serviceberry tree, a native shrub, amelanchier, and some of the interior leaves were turning yellow. That would have been in, I guess, about June. So that's perfectly normal. The tree is still in its first year about. The exterior leaves were, were green and healthy. And uh, some trees, some plants will do that, that they will, they will shed the leaves that, that came out first in the spring. And then there'll be a second wave of growth. And then, for instance, like conifers, pine trees, other evergreens, rhododendron, they'll hold the leaves. It's, it's usually at least two years. There's a time of the year or a rhododendron or a pine tree, where it's, it's losing all its foliage. And it's different for different, different types of plants. So there's a time of year where it could look like it was in distress. There are all these yellow needles or leaves dropping. And so that's pretty simple to look up online. Say, I have this type of plant. It's this time of year. Is this normal? And for those of you for whom the Latin names for plants are particularly important, we use a lot of common, common names. names, mostly because I, I do not <laughs> have a horticultural <laughs> background. So, But we will, in show notes, if there's something we've referenced in particular, it's been a, a particular focus of the show, we'll go ahead and get those Latin names there for you. Certainly important then when you go to the nurseries and you want to reference something, mm -hmm. which, as I have found. So I, know, so I know I that that's helpful. thought of another subject. Soil, too, that's with, with tree selection. And so a simple test that's pretty universal is before you select a tree, get out a shovel, a garden trowel, dig up the soil where you want to plant it. You can have garden gloves on if you don't want to get your hands dirty. Take some soil in your, in your hand and make a ball out of it. It's a very accurate test. If that ball, if you shape it into a, a tight ball and it is not going to, it's going to stay like that forever, then it's clay. If, it's, if you make a tight ball and it stays like that, then the other extreme, if you try to make a ball out of that soil and it doesn't hold at all, it's probably sand. So ideally, many plants, like a mix of organic matter, some sand is okay, and some clay. If you make a ball and it's 100% sand, it's very sandy, it's going to limit the plants that you could select. If you make the ball and it's very clay, that's going to limit also. All right, so we're coming to the end of this episode, and we've barely scratched the surface, so to speak, of, uh, of soil, certainly is a topic. We didn't get into pruning a whole heck of a lot, just that, that structural pruning. And again, we'll link to some info in the show notes. And mostly about, you know, picking the right plant for the right spot. And we'll certainly talk more about ornamentals, shrubs, annuals, perennials as the series goes. So if there's anything about which you have a particular interest, shoot us an email. Any last thoughts here, Charles, before we end the episode? You know, visiting parks, arboretum, botanic gardens, the cooperative extension in your area, 
that's a great resource. You know, seeing, I lived in Brooklyn for a while, going to the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, seeing what plants are happy living in Brooklyn. And when you travel, going to other, it's more like a, more or less like a plant museum, places where people care for the plants, seeing what thrives, and then seeing what that work back home. Great. So thank you for listening to this, our first episode of In the Landscape. We are Kate and Charles of King Garden, and we hope that you listeners will grow with us as our podcast grows. We look forward to future episodes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.